Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, joined by co-host Shannon Bond. Shannon, welcome to 2016. Happy New Year. Everything is going to hell, and it's only the first week of the year. But you're saying because we have to be back at work, right? Yeah, that's part of it, but also Chinese markets cratering, tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran, oil now below $35 a barrel. North Korea claims to have successfully conducted an H-bomb test. We don't know if that's true or not, but what the hell is happening? Well, and uh, I'd just like to remind you that the presidential election is still going on and we haven't even had the first voting. We're 10 months away still. We're 10 months away. How are we going to survive? It's going to be a long year. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's not going to be a long year. It's going to be an awesome year. Uh, And you and I are going to issue our predictions for what's going to happen in 2016 at the end of the show. So everybody stick around for that. But for now, let's get right to it. On the show today, Barney Jobson, U.S. policy correspondent of the FT, is going to tell us all about armslist.com, the eBay for guns. Yes, it exists. It is a thing. Then Tim Bradshaw and Leslie Hook are San Francisco correspondents who attended the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas this week are going to tell us what they saw. And then finally, Shannon and I are going to issue three predictions each for what's coming in 2016. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. On the line from D.C. is Barney Jobson. Barney, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Good to be here. Uh, so this story is really quite fascinating. Armslist.com. Why don't you just start by telling us what it actually is? So this is a website where American gun users, gun enthusiasts can go to buy weapons online, just like you can now buy a great variety of other consumer products. E-commerce has arrived in the world of firearms, and it's hugely popular. There are tens of thousands of weapons available any day, tens of thousands of transactions going on, all facilitated by this website, Arms List, which effectively acts as a marketplace, just like eBay, the place where buyers and sellers can go to to find each other. But the difference here, though, is that you can't buy things illegally on eBay or on Amazon or whatever, right? You can buy something illegally on this website. That's correct. Now, the website owners say that they're not facilitating illegal transactions. They don't have control over the transactions. But the reality is that whether they like it or not, people who are buying guns illegally are using this website to do so. So the question is, who's responsible for this? How can those illegal transactions, transactions which result in guns ending up in the hands of people who are prohibited from owning them, how can those transactions be stopped? And so, I mean, they're essentially making a free speech argument, right, that they are just the place where this happens. They're not in charge of kind of the content of what's what's going on there. So what the the proposed executive orders that President Obama announced this week, what would that do for arms list? So the president's action is all about background checks on gun buyers. Now, these background checks are generally required by the law already. If somebody goes into a, a licensed store to buy a gun, 
the cashier has to call up the FBI and the FBI will check that person's name to make sure they don't have a criminal record, they don't have a domestic abuse conviction, they don't suffer from mental illness, they're not drug addicts. So those background checks stop guns falling into the hands of people who shouldn't have them. The problem is the checks are not universal. They have to be done if weapons are purchased at a licensed store, but there's a whole world of transactions that happen outside of this licensed world where the background checks don't occur. Now, people often associate these with gun shows, and that was important a few years ago, but now it's internet sales where all these unchecked transactions are occurring. So what the president's trying to do is basically broaden the scope of background checks. So somebody who buys online needs to be vetted in just the same way as somebody who bought a gun at Walmart, say. So I was I was intrigued in your article, uh, Barney, to learn that this something related to this company had gone to a court ruling uh, a couple of years ago because you'd think that it wouldn't take too much time to catch on to what was happening here, that, that if illegal transactions were being processed through this site, that the authorities, some prosecutor somewhere would have cracked down. And yet this site still persists. Yeah, this was an important court case in which arms list emerged victorious, basically. What happened is that a, a guy from Canada came to Washington state to buy a gun, simply by virtue of the fact he was not a US citizen, he was not allowed to buy the gun. But again, he met somebody on arms list, that person was willing him to sell him the gun, even though he shouldn't have been buying it. And tragically, the guy who bought the gun then drove to Chicago and used it to shoot dead a lady who'd been resisting his romantic advances. This went to court, the brother of the victim said that arms list was guilty of negligence for allowing this guy to get hold of a weapon illegally. However, arms list was victorious because the court decided that the website did not owe, to use the legal term, a duty of care to the victim. The arms list provided the forum where this transaction took place, but it had no responsibility uh, for the results of the weapon being used. So that was a big victory for the case, uh, sorry, for the company. And that showed us that the courts may not be able to deal with this. We know that Congress is not going to deal with it so many gun supporters in Congress. That's why it's the president having to resort to executive action to tackle the issue. What about what about public sentiment about this? I mean, in terms of support for expanding these kinds of background checks, the, the moves that, that Obama is making, I mean, as you point out, we haven't seen any action in Congress. What does the public think? Well, despite the polarization of the politics on this subject, there's actually very broad support for broadening these background checks. Several polls have showed us that around 90% of Americans think it's sensible to expand these background checks so they become universal. So uh, you, you think that made the issue a, a no-brainer, but no, the gun lobby and their allies in the Republican Party are ignoring those polls and portraying this move as an attack on Americans' Second Amendment rights to uh, own firearms. They say that Obama is out to kind of confiscate your guns which is, to say the least, uh, an exaggerated, I think, portrayal of what's going on. But there's a, there's a notable distinction there between what the polling says, broad support, and the politics, where it's still a kind of 50-50 split between the parties on this issue. I've got kind of a weird question here, too. And I guess I'm trying to analogize the relationship between armslist.com and maybe gun retailers or, you know, the gun lobby, on the one hand, and then like, online sales of normal consumer products and traditional retailers. On the other hand, I guess I'm wondering if one of the reasons that the gun lobby isn't going to come to the defense of something like armslist.com is that actually they represent the big gun sellers, the traditional retailers, whereas this is something that essentially just matches 
somebody who already has a gun and somebody who wants to buy a gun? Yeah, that's an that's an interesting question. No, we've not seen the National Rifle Association come out specifically to defend armedlist.com or any of the other online gun sellers. But the two groups, the NRA and the, the website themselves, are making the same argument here. I mean, aside from the question of uh, the president supposedly confiscating their guns, the argument they make is the focus on background checks is misguided. They say, if you want to stop mass shootings, broadening background checks is not the way to do it, that the mass shootings we've seen in last year, in the last years would not have been stopped by broadened background checks. So their argument is that the president's focusing on the wrong area. So there's some commonality there. But um, but you're right that this website, armslist.com, is a kind of informal online business that's rather apart from the kind of the big name gun manufacturers who have such influence. Last question, Barney. I want to kind of take advantage of the fact uh, that although you have lived in the U.S. for a while, you are, as is noticeable by your accent, a foreigner. And I guess I want to say that, you know, there's, there's a kind of a morbid fascination with U.S. gun culture, that kind of thing. Are you personally, when you when you first came to the U.S., were you sort of stunned by the ease in which it's possible to buy guns here? And are you are you somewhat on a visceral level surprised that something like armslist.com actually exists? Certainly when I arrived, I was surprised in certain parts of the country. It's interesting if you hang out on the East Coast, East Coast, you don't often encounter this issue. But when I've traveled in the interior of the country, yes, it, it's striking how how guns are such a central part to to people's uh, cultural habits, if you like, to their uh, the way they go about protecting themselves. And digging into the arms list story, yeah, I've been surprised again just how easy it is to buy guns on online. As I said, just as easily as you can buy your groceries or, or, or your clothing. So it, it does remain surprising to me. But I think. It's also surprising to a lot of Americans. This is a very polarized country on this issue. Uh, and for every person who he sees a gun as a, as a tool of personal freedom, there's somebody who lives on the West Coast or the East Coast or somewhere else in the country who views it as, a, as an object of fear. So uh, foreigners are certainly surprised. But I think there are also Americans who don't understand how the other half of the country thinks about weapons either. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Barney Dobson on the line from D.C. Thanks for joining us, man. Thank you. Pleasure. Now we have Tim Bradshaw and Leslie Hook, our San Francisco correspondents who just got back from Vegas to talk about what they saw at the Consumer Electronics Show. Leslie, Tim, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Okay, so I can tell from the stories you guys were writing uh, that you did not blow off this assignment and go gambling or check out the latest Robert Goulet or Penn & Teller show or whatever. Does each of you just want to start by telling us, you know, what one thing really stood out to you from the conference, and then we'll get into a little bit more detail? Leslie, you want to start? Sure. I guess the thing that really stood out to me was the um, growing presence of Chinese um, companies, Chinese hardware manufacturing. You know, more and more of the gadgets that are on display are actually made in, in China, usually in southern China. Um, but for Chinese companies, a lot of them see CES as a kind of coming out. Uh, and a lot of big Chinese tech companies were there for the very first time this year, like LETV, which is a you know Chinese media company, Ehong, which is a drone company. They 
they launched their first, you know, personal uh, human drone that will uh, carry a human, you know, and ferry it, ferry you around. And, uh, you know, for, for companies like Intel and IBM, CES is like an annual event that they've been doing for decades. And, but for the Chinese companies, they're really uh, focused on, on their branding and, and reaching new markets and kind of boosting their image. So that was sort of what, what stood out to me. Yeah, Tim, you're an old CES hack. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I I would say I was going in to CES expecting there would be a lot of car stuff, and there was a lot of car stuff. I mean, it was just everywhere. Every stand, regardless of how re- remotely they were connected to the automotive industry, had some kind of car. And whether it was sort of dashboard technology like CarPlay and Android Auto, which has kind of gone from being nowhere to everywhere, um, to the Faraday Future thing, which is this weird startup that's still slightly mysterious that showed off this bizarre electric concept car and to sort of autonomous stuff kind of everywhere. Yeah, it was definitely, um, I mean, given that we have the Detroit Motor Show coming up, I think next week, um, I don't know what there will be left to announce. It was all at CES this year. Another area, Tim, that I know you've been writing a lot about uh, leading up to this and that there was a lot of hype kind of going into CES was VR. Um that's sort of this eternal, certainly for the media companies I cover, everyone's really, really excited about it. But it's also still, it feels like it's been such like slow going on actually producing products and content um, that are accessible to you and me. And Real not quick just... for our listeners, VR, virtual reality. I mean, this the, this was kind of billed as the big coming out year for virtual reality, but it's 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 a bit of a weird time because we're between a couple of launches. So we've got the kind of the three big headsets, Oculus Rift, HTC Vive and PlayStation VR are all still not out. Um, so although there's, there's a few, quite a few demos around, there are huge lines around the Oculus stall in particular. None of them are things that anyone's been able to go out and actually buy. So the one big news, uh, piece of big news that we did get was how much the Oculus Rift is going to cost, which is $600, which is almost twice as much as how much they were selling their um, sort of prototypes to developers. So there was a real sticker shock uh, around that, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and that's before you spent um, a grand or more on on the computer that you need to to, to plug it into. So um, yeah, there was a lot of excitement around VR, but um, I think there was. Uh, I mean, the, the the content side of things is is now where the kind of focus goes to. We sort of know what all of those headsets kind of look like. We just need to see how many people are going to buy them. Six hundred dollars, maybe not as many as um, some people might have hoped. But um, the the most interesting um, VR content I saw was actually they're previewing or premiering, I should say, The Martian. Fox uh, has has been putting a lot of effort around. VR material, mostly so far for promotions for existing movies. But this was the first time they've tried to create an experience that was kind of native to VR. So it's sort of halfway between playing a video game and watching a movie. And so you get little clips of Matt Damon um, stranded on Mars, uh, as as with the, the, the film that came out late last year. Um, and then you also sit there in the hab or driving the rover around Mars, growing potatoes and um, avoiding uh, sandstorms. And it was pretty good. I think I think it, it definitely felt like a, a kind of a first try. Um, I know Matt Garahan, who's our media editor, was there and we tried it together. Um, it was the first time he'd tried Oculus at all and he was totally blown away i've tried oculus 
quite a few times and and i i sort of i i guess i could see a little bit more of the limitations my guess is that matt is actually the desired audience for this people who are coming new to vr they want a sort of franchise or a format that they feel is familiar but also does something completely different to what they would have in a cinema and so i think the martian is a really interesting first step towards that for media companies the the other the other the other thing on vr that was very entertaining to watch from the outside was um samsung has the gear vr which is a, an oculus partnership where it just uses a galaxy phone as as its screen you slot it into this $99 headset and they had set up a, a stand of probably two dozen people sitting on a moving chairs and all experiencing a virtual roller coaster ride together and it was there's a little clip of it on our Instagram on the FT's Instagram feed it, it was kind of hilarious to watch it looked kind of nauseating um, to actually experience and the, the people were really kind of losing losing their uh, heads about it but were, that was that was a kind of fantastic demonstration that VR doesn't have to be something you sit lonely by yourself in your room doing um, you know subsisting on uh, takeaway deliveries and Soylent and, uh, and and existing only in the virtual world it can it can be a sort of um, participatory experience as well which which I think is very important if, if we're to kind of make this technology seem less weird than putting something on your face naturally does. Were there any new entrants into either existing or burgeoning young markets that really stood out? I, I think one of you wrote a piece about Casio entering the smartwatch market, or were there any new products themselves that may not be something on the scope of like a VR, but that were still kind of intriguing and something to watch? Uh, Leslie, you want to start with this one? There were some new products at CES that have sort of really questionable usefulness. And I think it's quite, you know, entertaining to sort of walk around the floor and see, you know, what technology can do, but then also ask, well, like, what purpose does this serve? And is this something that people need. And uh, a great example of that was the smart shoe that was on display at CES Unveiled. And this shoe, you can basically tie and untie with your smartphone, you know, so it but it doesn't actually have laces, it just sort of opens and closes. And the shoe will also like alert you if the if your sole is running out and needs to get resold. So in case you can't be bothered to just glance at your shoe, you'll have an app uh, that will, you know, basically do that for you. That actually seems like something that like for the vast majority of us wouldn't be worthwhile. But if you're thinking about like old people, right, who have trouble bending over or something like that, then eventually that kind of technology might be useful, right? Even if right now it doesn't have a kind of commercial application. I wonder if that's very much the point. One of the points of this conference is that you're just coming up with stuff and maybe right now it's not immediately obvious what you use it for, but maybe later it, it leads to dividends. I mean, this this to me is the kind of point of CES exactly that you're you it's it's the sort of infinite monkey typewriter pool, but with smartphone components. You've you've basically got um, this huge kind of supply chain that's set up to deliver amazingly high quality cameras and sensors and processors that have gone into our phones, and now people are just putting them wherever the hell they can think to put them. And some of those things will make sense. Nobody, I mean, if you're if you're going to launch a kind of smart shoe, you probably want to pitch it at the kind of athlete audience rather than try and make it something for seniors, which would be um, perhaps more lucrative but but less sexy on the floor of, of CES but the, the same thing kind of applies to, 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 to the thing I'm still slightly scratching my head about which is which was Samsung's latest take on the internet fridge I, I, I mean we've had these literally since 1999 so it's there's a bit of a sort of is this the peak of the current tech cycle question that, that that comes around every time we see another internet fridge but this one has a 21 inch touchscreen on it which is which is 
sort of huge and, and supposedly for kind of writing messages to your family or um, streaming the football from your Samsung TV in the living room if you want to. Um, and it also has a camera inside it, which is obviously connected to the internet so that you can see from the shops whether or not you have milk. Is this solving a problem that humanity needs to be solved? I'm not sure, but I think some people will find it useful. And especially if you're, you know, trying to feed a huge family and, and constantly kind of running around and harassed and, 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 you know, managing simple things like food supply is a challenge. And, and if you have run out, I think it, they've got a partnership with, um, I think it's MasterCard and maybe Instacart to, to order you new groceries if you don't. So again, I, I think the, sa the same thing kind of applies to the smart shoe. Like it, it's sort of, it, it would be very easy to dismiss it. We probably should be kind of slightly rude about it. Um, I think that's healthy, but I, there are sort of elements of these ideas that when you just have so many people at CES throwing out so much that some things will eventually catch on. And I think you know, security cameras like Nest Cam and um, some of those stuff are, are kind of one of the areas where the smart home, which so far has been a solution looking for a problem, you know, that, that has actually kind of begun to take off a little bit. So I think sort of cameras in funny places, you know, might eventually become a thing. Leslie Hook, Tim Bradshaw, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, the moment I'm quite sure everybody's been waiting for, Shannon and I are going to give our predictions for 2016. We've got three each. Okay, Shannon, I'm nominating you to go first. All right. Well, I thoroughly expect to be proven wrong by the end of the year, so that's fine. So we everyone just make be. a note, and we can talk about how wrong we were in uh, 12 months. My first two are kind of related, but so my first is that uh, we're going to see TV ratings continue to tank um, and you know some continued shakeup in advertising spending. Uh, just a whole variety of habits that we've talked about, uh, a whole lot of other options. And even though it's a presidential election year uh, and an Olympics year, I still think it's going to not necessarily be great news for the big networks who are still really, really, really dependent on advertising at a time when people are less and less interested in watching ads. The golden age of television totally passing by the networks. Well, the golden, no, I wouldn't say that because I think one of the things that's been really interesting is while there's so much focus, right, on like Netflix and Amazon and, and all these new people making TV, there's actually really good TV on network TV as well. But the question is, like, how is it being valued? You know, it, when you're competing with somebody like Netflix who doesn't have to sell advertising, just the whole, the whole economics, as we've talked about, of TV are really shifting. So that's interesting. Okay, my turn. I'm going to give an economics prediction, okay? I think that if oil does rebound this year from below 35 bucks a barrel, it won't rebound past... $55 a barrel, right? And whatever rebound will be kind of limited in its, in its mm -hmm. uh, slope, right? So we don't have to so, worry about driving? Well, here's the thing. So I, I chose 55 for a reason. That's roughly half of the highs that oil reached a few years ago. And what I think now is that the economics, the landscape of oil production is now changed, right? And I'm not just talking about what Saudi Arabia is doing or Iran. I think the fracking industry is able to respond to high, higher oil prices much better than oil producers were in the past. I think that has completely changed the landscape of how oil production actually works. So if there's an oil rebound, and there might be, I think it'll be limited. I don't think we're going to get anything you know, close to uh, its previous highs or even half of that. Will that have spillover effects on other commodities? 
Look, I don't know. I mean, remember this. So there's a supply story, and then there's a demand story, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think less in terms of spillover effects from oil to other commodities and more of how they'll move in tandem. Right. So if the global economy recovers more strongly than we think, then oil will go up and so will other commodities. And if not, then oil will stay low and so will other commodities. And of course, the place to watch for all that is China. Your second prediction. All right. So uh, at the Consumer Electronics Show this week, uh, Netflix announced that it was now uh, operating in another 130 countries. Yes. Basically saying they are now like a global TV network. And I just think we're going to see – that's like a symbol of like we're just going to see more and more of this streaming video boom, which we saw last year. It's been crazy. There's been – you know, there's tons of these networks and subscriptions now. But I think that what's going to be interesting is what happens from that. And I've been a proponent of this idea that there's going to be a rebundling of TV. So, for you know, people were worried – have been worried that there's like a real threat to the cable bundle because why should I pay for an expensive right. cable subscription when I can just, you know, get Hulu and – and Netflix and like something from NBC. But NBC is talking about how they are potentially developing nine more independent streaming sites. Right. And so I think at some point people aren't, aren't going to pay for all of those things and you're going to see some really interesting deals being done with traditional TV providers, with new TV providers, just new ways of paying, new ways of watching what we want to watch. So that, that, was, that was Reed Hastings' phrase, right? A global yep. TV internet network, yep. something like that. So unbundled and now rebundling. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because like Netflix, you know, it's kind of trying to replace the full scope of your cable bundle, right? Because they offer everything. They have, uh, or almost everything. They don't have sports, but they have kids programming and they have movies and they have dramas and you know all sorts of stuff. Um, whereas many of the uh, uh, the forthcoming services we're going to see, NBC just launched a comedy service. That's like those are much more kind of individual verticals or individual right. topics. So I think it kind of depends. I mean, Netflix is under less pressure maybe to, to offer a bundled option, but just like from a pure like point of view for the consumer, like how many of these bills are you going to pay? You know, I don't know when the last time you logged into your Netflix account was, you know, yesterday, the day before, whatever, but it's kind of astounding how many original shows Netflix has now? Ones that, even the ones that aren't really advertised heavily that you haven't heard mm -hmm. of, you go there and you see that there's Netflix original after Netflix original. I think I'm going to try Jessica Jones next. What about you? I really like Jessica Jones. I've been a fan of it. No so spoilers. I think you should. I think you should definitely check that out. Um, I'm really interested in uh, checking out The Crown, which is this show they have coming up about uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Okay. It should be good. My next prediction, economic growth in the U.S., I think it will be slower than it was this year. I think it will be tepid but still solidly positive. I think jobs growth will also be positive and probably above the rate that you need to continue lowering the unemployment rate. But at the same time, it won't be as impressive as it was last year. I think slowing growth in the rest of the world, I think the fact that the Federal Reserve has already started hiking rates, will have some kind of an impact on the U.S. So I think growth in the U.S. will be fine. We won't fall into a recession but it won't be all that impressive either. Frankly, it will be beneath mm -hmm. what it could be if policymakers were a little bit more aggressive. And now finally. Well, and that's good. So what you just said yes. is going to relate, I think, to the election, right? Yes. yes. Because, I mean, certainly what happens in the economy the closer we get to November um, yes. is going to have real so repercussions. This is the big, this is the big prediction because this is the one we're probably we're most likely to be wrong oh, about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it's really hard to figure out what's going to happen. So – Spoiler alert, we have no idea what's going to happen, but here's what, here's what we think. Your predictions for the next president of the United States and perhaps more interestingly, who she, because it's likely to be a she this time, mm -hmm. 
will beat in the general election after the Republicans figure out who it is that they want to represent them. I think Hillary Clinton will win. I think she will beat Rubio as a Republican candidate. But I think there is a good chance that Trump will stay in as an independent, uh, even though he has said he won't. And there's been pushes for pledges and all of this. I just I think it's going to be a bit of he a mess. Keeps, he keeps going. He keeps going. He has the money to do it. And you know he draws these crowds. And people really do like him. So Plus, that's that's one of those things where you know he is not somebody to admit defeat very easily. Right. He'll try to as long as he's having fun and enjoying it and like getting out there. Like what he, he what's the incentive for him not to do this? Right, but whatever whatever it is that happens, whatever mm-hmm. the outcome, mm-hmm. he will find some way to right. say he'll have the banner out that says "Mission Accomplished." Right, right? He'll, exactly. You know, he'll yeah. say, "Well, this a job well done. I came what I what I wanted right. to do. I'm not a loser. Right. I win no matter what." <laughs> right. I'm walking away. And I think, and that's actually then that that potentially helps Hillary because I think he is then a, a spoiler right. to a degree on the Republican side. What okay. about you? Uh, I'm going to follow current trends and say that Hillary Clinton ends up defeating Ted Cruz, who will end up as the Republican nominee after a brokered convention. You just want to live in West Wing hell? world. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I don't know. Any, none of us really knows how a brokered convention works. We're all going to have to look this up, by the way. As journalists, I think we're going to have we're going to be duty bound to figure out how this stuff works. The only frame of reference we have right now is the West Wing, okay? But at the same time, I mean, th- that looks like a, a fairly likely or a fairly possible outcome right now. Just because we have so many people. You have so many, right? and I think, I think you're going to end up with Trump and Cruz still as the guys with the you know, highest share in the polls, maybe the highest number of delegates going into the convention. And then who the heck knows what's happened when we actually go to the brokered convention. But I think Cruz emerges as a nominee because he'll still have a high share of the vote mm-hmm. count, high share of the delegates. Um, and so he'll be palatable to even the sort of rabid right wing base. And so, you, um, and you're predicting be, that's still going to determine, you know, who ends up being their nominee. And you're predicting that he his strength will continue past Iowa. I don't know. I, I think so. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's my guess. I mean, um, no one else has good numbers. So look, it, the problem <laughs> is that at any point in time, any of these guys really could fade away. Right. You know, and somebody else could shoot to the top. Until a couple of months ago, I would have agreed with you. Uh, Rubio is my guy, but it just turns out that he seems not to want to do any work. He seems not to want to do any campaigning. And a lot's been written about that. I find it fairly persuasive and a little bit disappointing um, because I thought he was the strongest of the Republican candidates and you always want the strongest candidates to emerge, right. um, no matter what your your political beliefs are. Okay, and we have to move on. Those are our predictions for 2016, but we want to know yours. So call us at 917-551-5012 or email us at alphachat at ft.com, and we'll share some of those on next week's episode. But on the line from London is Amelia Mahasek here for the follow-up segment. Amelia, how are you? I'm good. I'm in London. London's gray. It's gray or it's great? Or both? It's gray and it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Come back to New York. Cold and dark. Yeah. So what what did you think about our end of year... Christmas extravaganza episode. It was excellent. It went along at a good clip. I enjoyed the farmer thrills and spills of 2015 and the predictions for the year ahead. I see that um, David Crow's idea that there will be more issues have already, his predictions already partly come true with the Valiant chief executive um, stepping back with pneumonia, which I thought was highly ironic that the medical company has its chief executive hospitalized out of action. The oil decline, you know, potential IPOs for 2016, SoulCycle, Airbnb. I thought all that was 
excellent, very interested in also the idea of, um, which I don't think they use this term particularly, but I use it, peak valley with the valuations. Peak valley, yes. In Silicon Valley going down. I I was curious that um, I know you've remedied by adding your own 2016 predictions belatedly, (laughs) but um, no mention of the Fed, Cardiff. No view on 2016 for the Fed under yellow. The Fed, yeah. So I I can give you a, a cautious prediction on the Fed. I don't think there will be four rate hikes this year. I think there will be two or three, partly because of what's happening in the rest of the world and partly related to my other prediction that growth in the U.S. is likely to be positive but slow and that jobs growth won't proceed at the same clip as it did last year. I think there's going to start to be a convergence between what the Fed has said it will do this year, which is four rate hikes, and what the market expects, which is two. I think we'll end up with two or three, so split the difference more or less. And did you get any clues in the Fed minutes this week? Was that part of your thinking? Not really. I don't think we learned a ton in the Fed minutes this week. I mean, we we got detail on what the Fed means when it uses the word gradual. We'll get a gradual approach. It explained that in a little bit more detail, but it didn't really tell us anything new, either about the path of rate hikes that we can expect this week or about how the Fed is going to telegraph its rate hikes this week. I think what I took from the minutes was actually that the Fed is still kind of feeling its way through the dark here, as many of us are given that this really is uh, not an unprecedented circumstance, but one we haven't been in in the better part of, you know, a half century or so. And international turmoil uh, continuing. And Shannon, uh, on your patch, I was curious what you thought about 2016 for the content providers versus the platform providers. So, you know, in other words, we're very popular at the FT here because we produce content all of a sudden. Um, and uh, there seems to be that tension between the two sides of the business. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that we'll we'll continue to see those tensions. And I think we are starting to see some of those lines blurring about about sort of the distribution and content becoming aligned, whether it's in the case of, say, you know, Netflix or Amazon or, you know, what what somebody like Comcast does. I mean, I think there's still a big question over what they do um, since they were not able to do the big merger they wanted to do last year with Time Warner Cable. Does that mean that we maybe see some content investments from them? I mean, they already own NBC, but you know whether they do more kind of in the in the digital realm. Um, I think there's definitely tensions there, and, and then I think certainly for maybe traditional what were traditionally print publications like us, who are now of course thoroughly digital. Um, you know what the new platforms that come along are. We talked about a bit about this last year about this whole question of what happens with messaging apps and how people use those. So I think. Plenty more to come in that realm. Yeah. What about you, Amelia? Any any big predictions for the year to come? Uh, global domination for alpha chat. Yes. Yes. By the way, I got to say, uh, those were excellent questions. I'm starting to think that the follow-up segment could produce, could lead to its own spin-off podcast. What do you think? I could just call it the follow-up segment. No. Um, uh, I, I love being part of alpha chat in <laughs> any form. I just and... I basically just volunteered you for a lot of work. <laughs> Or just as well podcasts. So yeah. Okay. We got to go, Amelia. Thanks so much for everything. We will see you back in New York next week. Thanks, Carter. Thanks, Shannon. Bye. Shannon, your long form recommendation. 
So over Christmas, I read Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a sci-fi book. I loved it. It's about an interstellar spaceship taking a group of uh, settlers to a new a new planet um, in a new solar system. And But it's a generation ship, so it's like, you know, it takes 200 years and there's generations of people born on the ship. And it's about AI and humanity and what it means to explore. And I really enjoyed it. Fascinating book called People Who Eat Darkness about a very famous crime that happened in Japan at the start of the last decade. A British hostess called Lucy Blackman was killed by a, a Japanese guy who'd been preying on women for many years. Uh, and the book is just a kind of a, a very gripping exploration of, of who this guy was and the Japanese underworld. Uh, a great read that I would, I would highly recommend. I just finished River of Shadows by Rebecca Solnit, which is a really interesting portrait of a photographer um, who lived in California during the late 19th century, Edward Muirbridge. Um, he took pictures of, you know, wars with Native Americans. He uh, photographed, uh, you know, the houses of the railroad barons like the, the Stanfords. And he's most famous for his photos of a running horse uh, in which you can see the horse's legs off the ground. So it may sound like an obscure topic, but the book is really about technology and the West and what it means to be able to, to take a photograph to, to capture an image and sort of cancel out uh, time and space um, in doing that. So I'd highly recommend it. Mine was actually one that um, was, was recommended by Elon Musk in a tweet over Christmas. Um, it's a short story by E.M. Forster called The Machine Stops, which I think actually came out in the early 1900s originally, but but sort of is is one of those things that kind of looks a little bit like a peek at the future of, 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 of VR and, and video conferencing and instant message, everything over kind of Facebook and instant messaging. Basically, humanity um, has to live below ground. Everyone kind of has their own little cell and, and nobody kind of really moves anywhere and you, you can't sort of get around so you have to communicate by the sort of slightly VR sounding um, video conferencing and, and there's the story of how you know two, two characters on opposite sides of the planet try and actually have you know meet in person. So at the moment I'm reading A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. It's 700 plus pages. Uh, it was written over 18 months, so that's something for us all to aspire to. Hanya Yanagihara is an American Hawaiian. She's author. She, the, I picked up the book after reading in New Yorker. It was subversively brilliant. And I was, I have to say, a bit put off by the length of it. But despite its length, it's become one of the bestsellers of around that Christmas period, and particularly 2015. It's about four young men, all graduates of the same prestigious university in America, and their sort of journey through life, their pain and pleasures. It is quite dark and disturbing, but utterly gripping. I am recommending an article in Vanity Fair. The title is The Celebrity Surgeon Who Used Love, Money, and the Pope to Scam an NBC News Producer. It's by Adam Soralski, and it's fascinating because you see just how far a really smart con man can take his con, but you also realize that it's really hard to not be conned sometimes. In other words, uh, it's hard to always apply your own methods for scrutiny, your own methods for skepticism when you don't want to or when emotionally you're invested in something that prevents you from doing that. So it's a really fascinating piece and I recommend it for all the psychological and sociological insights you'll gain from it. Shannon, you want to take us home? 
All right. You can give us a call and let us know what you thought, what you'd like us to talk about. Give us your own recommendations, 917-551-5012, or send us an email or a voice memo to alphachat at ft.com. You can also keep up with us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. That's right. And by the way, I don't care if everything is going to hell in the first week of 2016. It is a happy new year when Amy Keene is your producer and editor. Thanks so much for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We will see you again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brien, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. Enjoy.